have unfolded. Uh, We learned that the year was 1445 BC, and the city of God lay in ruins, a state of ruins. The people of Israel had rebelled against the Lord time and time again, and because of their unfaithfulness to God, he'd allowed their city to fall into this this state of ruination. Uh, They'd ultimately been defeated by the Babylonians, this powerful empire, um, and they'd been scattered throughout the surrounding nations. And a report reaches this man called Nehemiah, uh, this man who was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was a member of the king's court. And this report expressed the shame of his fellow Jews at the fact Jerusalem lay in ruins, its walls broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah's response to this news is really striking. He weeps. He's broken over this terrible news. As Danny Crook shared with us uh, opening up this series, no walls and no gates meant no identity once this this had been a people, a strong and powerful people. Uh, But now uh, they were weak and scattered. And Nehemiah's response is one of weeping. It's one of sadness. And so amidst his tears, Nehemiah identifies the root cause of this desperate situation, this, this, this situation of shame. The people of Israel had rejected their God. They'd sinned against him. They'd rebelled against him. And as such, they were receiving just punishment for their corruption. However, as Nehemiah prayed, there's something striking that, that appears in his prayer, and that's a hope. And that hope is in the solid promises of God. Because the Lord, he said, had declared to Moses that if the people returned to him, returned to God, and kept his commandments, then they would be gathered together once more. And the Lord would once again dwell in their midst. The people of God in the city of God in a restored relationship with God. That was Nehemiah's hope as he prayed. Lord, these are your promises. I cling to those promises. And in his grace, we've seen the Lord answer Nehemiah's prayer. We learned that that Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and commenced this rebuilding project. The walls and the gates are are built with remarkable speed in 52 days, despite the hostile opposition that we heard Gareth talk to us about last week. And then, as Tim shared with us, Nehemiah's attention shifts from the rebuilding of the walls to the rebuilding of the people. And this was actually the more significant stage of the process. A people called back by means of the word of God to obedient worship of God. Then in chapter 9, as Peter shared with us this morning, the people of Israel acknowledge God's character, declaring him to be a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And they confess their sins to this God. They sum up the situation so well in in chapter 9 and verse 33 when they say of the Lord, yet you have been righteous in all that's come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. They recognize the reality of the situation. Then in chapter 10, the people dedicate themselves to the Lord once more and they make this oath, this oath that sounds so impressive, it sounds so hopeful. They make an oath to honor him with their lives going forward. Chapter 10 closes with these words, we will not neglect the house of God. Then in chapter 11 and the early part of chapter 12, we read about the continued repopulation of this city, the city that had been decimated and the people scattered, actually was becoming a city that was filled with life and hope once again. 
Then in in chapter 12 and verse 27, the book of Nehemiah reaches this climax. The walls have been rebuilt. The people have been restored to the true and living God. And now a great and joyful celebration takes place, the likes of which hadn't been seen in this city probably for hundreds of years. And we're going to read about that together now. If you have a Bible with you, do open it up to Nehemiah in chapter 12. I'd love it if you'd follow through with me as we read this. Nehemiah 12, and we're going to start the reading at verse 27. And it says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nathopatites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right towards the dung gate. Hosiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets. Also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the Tower of the Ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, to Jeshaniah, to the Jeshaniah gate, the fish gate, the Tower of Haniel, and the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the sheep gate, at the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs gave thanks, then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Masai, Miniamim, Micaiah, Eleoniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Masiah, Shemani, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanah, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezariah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I hope there's no Hebrew scholars here with us tonight because I'm sure I butchered some of those names, but hopefully we get the point of the passage. Back in the good old days, Rory McIlroy used to win major championships. In 2014, he won the Open Championship at Royal Liverpool by two shots. And upon winning, he embraced his mother, Rosie, and he went on to say, this is the first major I've won when my mom has been here. So, mom, this one is for you. McElroy dedicated his victory 
to his mother, which is a, is a lovely thing to do, isn't it? He gave the plaudits over to her, and he declared, this success that I've had, uh, this, this, this work that I've done, I want you to receive the honor for it. I want to make much of you uh, in this victory. And this evening, we've seen the people of Israel, they've done something uh, quite similar. They don't give themselves a pat on the back for the work they've done. They don't give Nehemiah a knighthood and Ezra the freedom of the city. No, instead, they dedicate their work back to the Lord. And in this jubilant celebration of joyful worship, they, they gather together as a community and they give him alone the praise and the honor for what they've achieved. And there's something profound and beautiful about that, I think. This rebellious people, isolated from their land, isolated from their God, now restored, living in God's city, his kingdom, worshiping him in community. I really love that picture. And tonight I want to focus on three lessons that I I think we can draw from this passage. And the first of those is this, our work should be dedicated to God and not to ourselves. Our work should be dedicated to God and not to ourselves. The second is our lives should be centered on the worship of God. And the third is we should be a people characterized by joy. So let's think, let's think together about that first point. In verse 27 of chapter 12, we read that planning for a great celebration was underway. The Jews had finished their hard work. At the walls of this great city had been rebuilt. And now there are people with an identity once again. This is, if you like, their 4th of July, their VE Day, their Independence Day. They intend to celebrate it in style. And we read that the Jews sought out a group known as the Levites. And the Levites were a tribe of Israel who were responsible for looking after the temple and leading the nation in worship, in the worship of God. And the priests formed part of this tribe, interceding before God on behalf of the people. And at the celebration, there were to be a whole list of different people. There were to be singers and musicians, along with all their instruments, cymbals, trumpets, harps, lyres, along with this thanksgiving and gladness. And you get a sense that something really significant is happening. And what is it they were celebrating? Well, if you look at verse 27, it says it a couple of times. They were celebrating a dedication. The wall they had built was being dedicated to the Lord. And I think this is a wonderful response to success. The 4th of July, uh, Independence Day, often it's filled with national pride and patriotism, isn't it? Uh, But this celebration, I think, is somewhat different. Because this people, they're not giving themselves the glory for what's gone on. They're not celebrating themselves, but instead they're recognizing that all they've achieved has come from God. All they've achieved has come from the Lord, and they want him to receive the glory and the honor for it. They're saying, this work we've done, O Lord, this work we've done, we did it for you, it's yours. And their attitude reminded me of a verse in in 1 Chronicles Chronicles where David says of the Lord, everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. They recognize the reality of that verse. The people of Israel could only do this work because the Lord had enabled them in the first place. And now they're merely giving back what is rightfully his, the honor due to his name. I was thinking, I wonder if this is my response to success. Is is this our response individually but also collectively? When we get our exam results over the summer, do we dedicate our success to the Lord? When we see our home group flourish and grow, do we think, wow, I've done a a cracking job this year organizing the home group and and teaching people well? Uh, look Look how people are flourishing as a result. 
Or do we say, Lord, do we get on our knees and we say, Lord, thank you, because this is a work you have done. Do we dedicate the success to the Lord? When our child gets into university, when we get that promotion, uh, when, we, uh, when our business is booming, do we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, this is, this is of you? When we see people become Christians through our August mission, do we think, wow, we organized a really cracking mission. We made, we made the church really appealing to people. We made Christianity really appealing to people. Or do we say, Lord, this is, this is a work of God. We give glory to you. Our homes, our cars, our possessions all come from his hand and should be dedicated back to him. I was thinking about an example from, from the New Testament to maybe illustrate this point, and I think Peter provides us with an example of what it means to dedicate our ministry to the Lord. In Acts 3, after he heals this lame beggar, people are in awe of both him and John. They are almost surrounding him, kind of gawking at him, and he responds, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we've made him walk? And he goes on to say, it's by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by faith in Jesus, that this man was healed. And I got the sense that Peter almost recoils at the idea that he's getting any glory for this work, that people are staring at him with awe and wonder. He, He hates that idea. And his response is, look, don't look at me, look at God. It was God's work. He deserves the glory and honor for it. And I think in just the same way, the people of of Nehemiah respond with a celebration and praise, looking away from themselves, not looking to Nehemiah or or Ezra, but to the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing, because actually what we'll realize is it doesn't take away from their joy. It doesn't take away from their joy at all. In fact, it enhances their joy many times over, because the Lord is seen as the majestic and generous God that he is. So that's our first point. Their past work was dedicated to God. And now to our second point, our lives should be centered on the worship of God. Our lives should be centered on the worship of God. And this is a point that really struck me. Because not only were the people giving over their past work to the Lord, but in this celebration, they're making a statement about the centrality of God in their lives going forward. And I think they represent this this visually, actually, with their march around the city. In verse 31, just glance down at that with me, uh, you'll see that Nehemiah appoints two great choirs. Do you see that in verse 31? Uh, And apparently the word choir is literally thanksgivings. It's literally translated thanksgivings in the Hebrew. Uh, As commentator Derek Kidner puts it, it's almost as though these choirs were the embodiment of what they sang. I love that. One thanksgiving went clockwise around the city, the other went anti-clockwise. They, they end up meeting at the temple. You see that in verse 40. Ezra went one way, Nehemiah went the other, and both groups end up in the temple. It says in verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of the Lord. And I just love that visual representation, a city surrounded by the praise and worship of the Lord, the climax being the worship of God in the temple, in the presence of the Lord. And you just get the sense that the Lord is back in his rightful place in the middle of this city, in the heart of this community. And that march around the walls, I think it gave them an insight also into all the Lord had been doing through them. Psalm 48 uh, describes a similar event. It says in verse 12, Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels. 
that you may tell of them to the next generation, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. As they look at the walls, God becomes the source of their rejoicing and their celebration. They see this transformation in the city, and they give glory to the one who is supreme above all. And I think in finishing at the temple, they're making a statement. These walls, this city, yeah, they matter. Yeah, they're important. Yeah, they're part of our identity. But what matters above all is the God who dwells in our midst. We don't worship the walls. We don't worship the city. We worship our ever-faithful God. And I think it's all too easy, isn't it, not to have that mentality, not to have God at the center of our lives individually, but also as a community, I find I can get so caught up with, with, with church service, with, with serving other people, with almost looking good in their eyes, that I forget who I'm ultimately serving. Sometimes we get so caught up with the way things have always been that that almost takes the central place. Tradition takes the central, central place rather than loyalty to Christ. Sometimes we get so caught up with embracing this new uh, evangelical trend this thing that's working over here, that that takes central place. We almost fixate on that thing instead of worshiping Christ. I think both kill worship because Christ is no longer the focus. Something else is. He's no longer being given the central place. Another way I think we can displace Christ is we can elevate an individual. We can put them on a pedestal, a teacher, a preacher, whoever they might be. And this too kills worship because Christ alone is worthy to occupy that place. He alone is supreme. And and we can see the Jews understood that in Nehemiah 12 because they didn't end up in Nehemiah's house, did they? They didn't end up in Ezra's house. They didn't gaze in awe at the talents of of the musicians and the singers, talented though I'm sure they were. But they ended up in the house of the Lord in awe of his majesty and goodness, offering sacrifices to the praise of his glory. And so to our third point, our lives, our second point was our lives should be centered on the worship of God. And finally, our third point, we should be a people characterized by joy. I've been really excited to get to this final point. This is uh, the one I really, really want to talk about because I love the transformation in these people's lives. For 140 years, their city had lain in ruins. For 140 years, they'd been in shame. They'd been without an identity. This people, a joyless, hopeless people, scattered across the nations, isolated from their city, isolated from their God. Tim Keller says, the opposite of joy is not sadness, it's hopelessness. It's having nothing to really rest in. And I think that's a profound statement because it describes the position the Jews ended up in. They'd rejected their God, the source of their rest, the source of their joy, and they were left in a place of hopelessness. What changed for the Jewish people? What brought them from that place of hopelessness to that place of joy? I think it was, I think it was this. I think it was that they humbled themselves. They turned from their sin. They turned from their rebellion against God. And they gave their lives over to him. They dedicated everything to him and once again gave him that central place as demonstrated by that walk around the city climaxing at the temple. He had that central place once more. Now they had hope. 
Because the true and living God was in their midst once again. And because they had hope, therefore they had joy, abounding joy. Notice verse 43. Look down at verse 43 with me. What does it say? It says, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. It wasn't a joy they they conjured up in themselves. It was God who made them rejoice. He is the source of their joy. If you want to know deep-rooted joy tonight that doesn't fluctuate based on circumstances, and I say this to myself as well, then get to know God. The amazing thing is that 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 joy the Jews had in Nehemiah's day, well, it's just a foretaste of what's to come. Because 400 years later, the angels would declare to a group of lowly shepherds good news of great joy that will be for all the people. A savior was born. Christ the Lord. And God's dwelling would no longer be in a temple because God in Christ took on human flesh and he told his followers that if they were to abide in him, to abide in his love, to keep his commandments, then his joy would be in them and their joy would be full. The Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh, called people to turn from sin, to give him the central place in their lives to dedicate everything to him, and in, in doing so, experience the fullness of joy. In the New Testament, we read these words as the Apostle Peter writes to a group of Christians experiencing suffering, the very thing you might think would kill joy. And he writes, though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, you love him, And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Jews in Nehemiah's day, well, they experienced a shadow of this inexpressible and glorious joy. This joy that comes when we give everything over to Christ. Now we have the reality. Now we have the substance. Because Christ died and rose again and is now in heaven, our sure and certain hope. Because we have that sure and certain hope as Christians, therefore we have joy. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to know that hope, to have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to have that certainty in heaven. Our sure and certain hope. Finally, look with me at the end of verse 43, this this final statement in our passage tonight. It says this, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I love this closing statement. The nations around Jerusalem had mocked and ridiculed. They must have thought this people, how shameful they are, how hopeless they are. But now they hear this sound of rejoicing. This sound of rejoicing could be heard for miles around. And don't we want that, the community around us here at the Crescent to hear our joy? Don't we want that? Don't we want them to to hear our joy and wonder what the source of it is? We long, I long, that our joy impacts those around us and draws them to our Savior, draws them to the source of our joy. What a wonderful thing that would be. Well, I believe the book of Nehemiah tells us how to get there. Through Nehemiah, God urges us to turn from sin and to dedicate everything to Christ, our work, our ministry, our homes, our families, and to give Christ that central place. And in doing so, we'll experience this resounding joy that will reverberate for miles around and draw others 
to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing this people from a place of hopelessness to a place of resounding joy. Lord, they did not deserve it, but you are a God who is faithful always, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, you have not changed. Lord, we thank you uh, that tonight, uh, Lord, you can give us that same joy. But oh Lord, it's even sweeter in light of the cross. Thank you that in Christ we have a sure and certain hope. Thank you that in Christ, if we trust in him, our sins are forgiven, washed completely clean. Thank you. Uh, Lord, for the certainty that one day, uh, as Christians, we will be with him and we will be like him. What a hope that gives us. Thank you that our salvation is secure in him. And because Jesus rose and because we are in him, we will be raised. What a wonderful truth that is. And oh, what joy it gives us. Lord, we have hope and therefore we have joy. And it's all of you. It's all of your grace and goodness. Thank you for the lessons of Nehemiah. Thank you. Uh, for all it teaches us. Lord, help us to give you that central place. Lord, help us to put you first above anything else, above tradition, above uh, trend. Lord, help us to dedicate all that we have, all that we are to you. Lord, and experience the joy that that results. Lord, we praise you for for the fact that your son said to his disciples, uh, Lord, that he would give them a fullness of joy. What a wonderful thing that is. It's something that we long for, uh, Lord, and it is, an offer, it is an offer to us tonight if we abide in him. So, Father, we bring these things before you now, and we just praise you in your son's name. Amen.